Thank you for that. Um, it's true. Today is Roy and my 11-year wedding anniversary. Sadly, Roy couldn't be here today because our boys aren't feeling well, so he's home with them today. Um, and yes, there are a lot of people who are not feeling well. It's, I think it's that change of weather we've had as, other, as well as other things that's been happening. And we have, I was counting the other day, we have 16 people who are traveling abroad as well. <laughs> and so um, there's, uh, there's a lot of people traveling and a lot of people are unwell, but that's all right. Um, we are keeping all of you in prayer if you're watching online. And um, for those of you who are here present, um, we'll, we'll be thinking of them and... Um, sharing and fellowshipping together on their behalf. I hope you all had a good Easter weekend. Um, we had, uh, Roy and I were at Big Camp. Um, some of you were there as well, uh, which was at Camp um, Lardner Park, which is out east, uh, where thousands of people gathered together to worship um, for several days. And yeah, it was it was. It was tiring, but um, but fun. Um, and, and I was in the lower primary division, which uh, where we had 80 children, ages six to six to seven, um, and it was lots of fun. <laughs> Roy was in the upper primary division as well as um, he had. Uh, he's a church planting director for the conference, so he was giving workshops and running here and there with announcements as well. Um, and he was also in charge of movie nights, and so he he was um, quite busy there. But yeah, it was a good it was a good experience, and it was good to be back home. Uh, Roy and I are starting our annual leave starting tomorrow, actually, so we'll be away for a bit. But we have really great guest speakers lined up for you all, and I hope that you come and support and show some great MCAC love to our guest speakers for the next few weeks. I can't believe it's already mid-April. This year is flying by. And I've been reflecting on what what April means to me personally. April has always been an interesting month, um, a time of transitions and uncertainties. April 2005, I remember, was the month before I was about to graduate from uni, and I was going to do my PhD in systematic theology, but then there was this church in New York City that was looking for um, an urban outreach coordinator, basically a Bible worker, and I remember feeling that tension, God, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to go in the academic route, or do you want me to, um, you know, go and serve this church in Manhattan? And that was a big moment in my life. A few years later, after working for two years in New York City, it was once again April, April 2007, and I wasn't sure what to do next. Should I go back to my original plan, or should I change my career path and go do my studies at the seminary to become a pastor? It was a very scary big step, and I wasn't sure what to do. April 2010, I graduated from the seminary that I ended up attending, and I wasn't sure where to take up my first full-time position. There was there were seven churches that I had uh, received a call from, and one of them was in Toronto, one of them was in Georgia, one of them was in Chicago. Um, there were and I and one was um, there were a few kind of different things, and I was really torn. God, what did you want me to do? And there was this guy that I was talking with. We were praying through, and he was supposed to move to Australia, and I just wasn't sure what God wanted me to do. 
Well, fast forward two years, and it was April 15, 2012, and I was marrying that aforementioned guy, and we were saying our marriage vows, but a lot had happened in the two years um, since we had dated. We had started dating, which was one, like, I, I ended up um, staying in Michigan and pastoring there, but also Roy um, was supposed to come to Australia, but... Long story short, um, that door had closed, and so we were we literally on our wedding day 11 years ago today, we were saying, for richer or for poorer, because we had no idea what God wanted us to do next. Um, he, he wasn't sure about his employment. I had already um, quit my job um, in Michigan, thinking that we were going to move to Australia, and there was a lot of uncertainty on our wedding day about where we were going to be. Um, one of the options was actually there were, there were um, churches in Chicago that we almost went to pastor. But long story short, we ended up in Melbourne. So 11 years and a whirlwind of Aprils later with two children and five churches between us. Here we are in April 2023. And I feel like we're at a crossroads again. How do we navigate the Aprils of our lives, times of uncertainties and transitions when we're waiting on God and we're not really sure what to do next. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 4, verses 29 to 31, looking at the story of Moses today. For over 400 years, the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt. For over 400 years, generations after generations were wondering, where is God? Why hasn't he rescued us? If he cares about us, then why is he allowing us to continue to be brutalized, bullied, and even butchered by the Egyptians? Finally, after 430 years of waiting, a man named Moses, who had once been prince of Egypt, comes to this downtrodden group who are weary of waiting and says, God is going to deliver you. And so we see here in Exodus chapter 4, verses 29 uh, to 31, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and many believed. And they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Can you imagine that moment? For the Israelites to finally hear that great news, God is going to deliver us. Can you imagine the excitement, the hope, right? The, the anguish of 430 years finally coming to this point where they can say, we are going to be free. Can you imagine the parents telling the children the great news that God had finally answered their prayers? But the very next day, freedom doesn't come. In fact, things get much worse. Exodus chapter 5. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. 
We read on in verses 6 to 9. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Can you imagine the consternation of the Israelites, right? Who the previous day had received this amazing news that God was going to deliver them. Now getting this news from the Egyptian slave masters that their work has tripled. Now they have to work the same number of, 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 of um, you know, produce the same number of bricks, but without the materials. They're told, go, go find your own straw. Go gather them yourselves. Make them into bricks. And here's the harsh punishment if you don't. So the leaders go to Moses and Aaron in great bitterness. And I don't blame them. Exodus chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord? Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. First of all, I love the fact that Moses feels comfortable enough with the God of the universe to complain to his face and say, why, Lord? That's been the cry of many who have followed God. Why, Lord? We can't understand God's time, God's ways, God's reasons. We can barely see beyond the suffering and the frustration of now. And because we don't understand And because so much evidence seems to suggest that God doesn't care, we come to that question, why? Why, Lord? And when you look at the story, when Moses comes to God and says, why, Lord? Things are are worse than before. The opposite of what you said is happening. God doesn't answer why. Not right now. He does later. He does before. And he does kind of behind the scenes, for example, that it's not just the Israelites' physical salvation he's concerned about, but also their spiritual salvation of building their faith, that God is also giving Egyptians a chance to repent and trust in him. In fact, by the time the exodus actually happens, there's quite a number of Egyptians who join them. That perhaps God is allowing the stubbornness of Pharaoh to play itself out so that all can see what a tyrant he truly is, etc. Right? But that's a sermon for another time. I could expound upon the whys. But in this moment of the story, God doesn't explain why. God simply repeats his promise to Moses. He says in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 8, Say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. And I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you. 
as a possession. I am the Lord. God reiterates the promise, but he doesn't give a timeline. He doesn't give a detailed explanation of how or why or who or where. He simply just says, I am the Lord your God. I will deliver you. I will bring you to the promised land. This is all Moses had as he went back to the people. He must have felt pretty intimidated as he went to tell them God's message. He had no answers for them. He didn't have a five-year plan, just God's word that he would do what he said he would. How do you think the people reacted? Exodus chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and hard, harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? In other words, did you catch that? What does faltering lips mean? It means Moses himself has doubts, right? Moses is scared. Moses is saying, I don't even believe the message that I'm carrying. God, how can I go to Pharaoh with conviction and courage when I don't even have faith? Poor Moses. He must have felt so frustrated. God had sent him to free his people, but he has made the Israelites' lives more difficult. Moses was obeying God, but the circumstances and the chain of events were not what he nor the people expected. The people of God didn't believe in his leadership, and the mission that God had called him to seemed to be failing. Have you ever felt like Moses? Like you're trying to do the right thing, but life just gets more difficult. And you look around at those who don't acknowledge God and they seem happy and healthy and life seems to work out for them. Meanwhile, you're sacrificing and and suffering and your prayers don't seem to be answered. And the Egyptians taunted the Israelites as they beat them saying, where is your God? Why doesn't he come and rescue you? And the Israelites had to endure this abuse and the bitter disappointment that shook their faith day after day, week after week. Because the exodus didn't happen overnight. Even from this day where they were given this this harsh condition of having to gather their own straws, there was no command given to relieve them from that duty, so they had to continue to work as slaves. And the miracles and the plagues that God provided, they didn't happen day after day after day. Between the plagues, there were days, weeks sometimes. Day after day and week after week, the Israelites had to choose faith. Faith is believing despite our circumstances. Faith is believing before the miracles happen. Moses and the Israelites had to choose to believe in God's promises that while they were still slaves in Egypt, that God was going to deliver them. Finally, 
It's April, around mid-April. God tells the whole community of Israel to take a lamb for each household. And then after four days, they are to take this lamb, to kill this lamb, to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of each household, to, to roast and eat that lamb. This is what God said, Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generation to come, you shall celebrate it as the festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And this became known as Passover, a day when God held every family in Egypt responsible for their part in the injustice and cruelty of slavery. A day when every family in Israel also had to choose faith in God, that they too were in need of mercy. That those who put the blood of the innocent lamb on the doorposts were saying, I need mercy in judgment. Please pass over me. All those who put the blood on the doorposts that night showed their faith in God's word and God's promises. And they ate that Passover lamb in anticipation of the freedom to come because they were still slaves in Egypt. They celebrated that Passover in faith that even though they were still in bondage, that one day God would deliver them. 1,500 years later, again, around April of AD 31, it's Passover week. And Jesus had been with his followers for three and a half years. For three and a half years, he had taught them, he had loved them, he had prayed for them over and over again that they would understand that the key to salvation is faith. That they would understand that that faith is, is believing that God's kingdom is coming even though all circumstances around them didn't suggest it. He wanted to teach them to, to have faith in people, to see God's image in every person regardless of their flaws, to love people, all people. He wanted to teach them to seek God and his kingdom first instead of earthly treasures and comfort. That they would realize that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom where the road of suffering and sacrifice and service is the way to heaven, not comfort and applause. But after three and a half years, they still didn't get it. The disciples are quarreling on the way to the Passover dinner. And they're fighting about who is the greatest. And when they're seated at the Passover dinner, supposed to be commemorating this night, this night of judgment and mercy, this night that is supposed to represent uh, the coming freedom and the, and the faith and the choice to put God's word as the priority. There they were in their pride and prejudice, refusing 
to budge. Because the ritual was that when you entered a house, the servants would come and wash your feet. But on this day, when the disciples entered this particular house, nobody came to wash their feet. And they sat down and they awkwardly eyed each other, trying to kind of nudge, be like, well, I'm not going to do it. You do it. No, you do it, right? And no one moved. And after a while, they just start, decided someone, you know, probably Peter decided, well, I'm, I'm going to just start eating, right? So they just, they just start eating without doing this ritual cleansing. And then something incredible happens in John chapter 13. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus serves his unworthy followers and loves them to the end. The God of the universe washes the feet of his betrayer. And then the Gospel of Matthew tells us in chapter 26, verses 26 to 29, that while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And that very evening, Jesus is arrested and taken, and the next morning crucified. And the hands that had touched so many to bless and heal them are nailed to the cross. And the feet that had traveled to so many towns to bring the good news are nailed to the cross. And the blood that was on the, on the post of that wooden frame brought self, salvation and forgiveness for the world. But the disciples didn't see that. What they saw was their Lord and Savior and best friend dying on the cross. The most embarrassing and awful, excruciating of all Roman punishments. That day in April was a day of crushing, crushing disappointment and heartache. The freedom that they had longed for, the salvation that they had expected had come to a full stop. For three and a half years, they had followed this man because they believed he was the Messiah who was going to deliver the Israelites from the Roman oppression and who was going to become king of Israel and was going to free them from all the tyranny that they had experienced, all the injustice they had experienced. But here he was, stripped naked, spat on, mocked by the crowd, saying, if you are the son of God, save yourself. Perhaps he would. The disciples watched in 
in agony as they saw their master suffering and there was still that small bit of hope maybe he will still save himself maybe god will still save jesus but as jesus breathed his last saying it is finished and hung lifeless on that cross can you imagine the disciples anguish all hope was lost have you ever felt like that like everything you believed in has fallen apart like everything you built your life around has broken down when your faith in god is shaken to the core days and nights when you're praying for the same thing and you feel like no one is listening if you have ever felt like that or perhaps right now if you are feeling like that i want to encourage you to hold on because friday jesus died on the cross but on that sunday morning he resurrected that night of passover as the israelites passover night sheltered themselves in the house they didn't know it then but freedom was coming the day after that first passover night after 430 years of slavery pharaoh finally let the people go and on that easter sunday the stone the stone that covered the grave was rolled away and jesus resurrected from the grave and the god of april lives our circumstances may seem like they're getting worse not better as we're waiting on god a confusion may grow but the god of april is still in control his wisdom his purpose his plan may not be in our timeline or in, in our expectations but the god of april still keeps his promises god despite our doubts our discouragement and even our denial is still working in us through us and for us the question is will we choose faith you've heard of johann sebastian bach and you've probably heard his songs but do you know his story johann sebastian bach was born on march 21 1685 to a german family of musicians they were protestants they were lutherans who believed in a personal relationship with god and salvation by faith But both his parents died before he was 10 years old. And so he was an orphan and his older sis- siblings took care of him. He was the youngest child. And he grew up and he became an organist. In 1707 at the age of 22 he married his cousin Maria and they had seven children together. But only three survived past childhood. Maria herself died suddenly while Joan was out of town. and he didn't even hear about her death for 2 months. Several years later Bach remarried a woman named Anna Magdalena Wilkin and they had 13 children together. But 8 of them died. Altogether Bach had 20 children but only half survived. Can you imagine losing 10 children, burying 10 children? 
As for his career, he shuffled between working for churches and royal courts. He also taught at a school. But it wasn't a smooth career. He wasn't always recognized. He wasn't always valued. He wasn't always, um, you know, uh, given positions that he wanted. And he moved around quite a bit. And when he died in 1750, Bach and his music were all but forgotten for almost a 100 years. And then in 1824, a grandmother gave her precocious 15-year-old grandson a copy of Bach's Oratio, St. Matthew's Passion, which, by the way, is a three-hour oratio of solo voices, double orchestra, and double chorus. It's about Jesus' death as detailed in Matthew chapters 26 and 27 that Bach had composed into a three-hour oratio. And this teenager, this 15-year-old, read this composition, and he was amazed. He had already, even though he was 15, he had already composed 12 symphonies. But when he read this, when he saw the, the, the musical score for, for Bach's uh, St. Matthew's Passion, it changed his life and his musical career forever. This young man, Felix Mendelssohn, was determined to bring this masterpiece by Bach into performance. No one really knew about, I mean, you know, a few people knew about Bach and his music, but for the most part, Bach had been forgotten. But Mendelssohn was committed to bringing this, this particular ratio to concert. So finally, it took five years, but finally at the age of 20, on the 11th of March, 1829, Mendelssohn conducted the performance of Bach's St. Matthew's Passion. It was a complete success. And so 10 days later on Bach's birthday, on the 21st of March, and then later on Good Friday, 17th of April, 1829, Bach's music was finally heard again in the world. And this time for good. Because thanks to Mendelssohn, Bach became known and is revered today in all his music. When interest returned for Bach, the biographers realized that while he had composed over 1,000 pieces of music, they didn't really know much about his personal life. or and They knew about his marriages and his children, etc., and, and where he had worked, but they didn't really know much about him. Who, what, 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 what motivated him? What inspired him? You know, what drove him? So we are left guessing about the personality and the person and, and the mind and the heart behind this musical genius. But we have some clues. In 1934, so much, much later and not that long ago from today, a German immigrant family unexpectedly discovered in their attic where they had their family heirlooms, the personal three-volume study Bible of Johann Sebastian Bach, extensively marked with his own notations. These three volumes have been read from cover to cover over and over again. And because this is the 1600s, this was one of the original Bibles that Martin Luther had translated into German from the Latin. This discovery was huge for lovers of Bach and history because here was proof of what inspired this man. And of course, if you look at the music itself, it tells us what was behind his inspiration. One of his most well-known songs is um, 
Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring. You might have heard this song before at weddings. We, I played it at my wedding 11 years ago. You might have heard it at Christmas services. The original German title for this composition is actually not Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring, which is a very awkward way of putting it. The German is actually Jesus bleibet meine Freude, which means Jesus remains my joy. Jesus remains my joy. And Bach based this song on a hymn that was first published in 1642 by Johann Schopp, which was later edited by uh, Martin Janus in 1661. And the English translation of this song actually says this. Blessed am I that I have Jesus. Oh, how tightly I cling to him, so that he delights my heart when I am sick and sad. I have Jesus who loves me and gives himself to me as my own. Ah, therefore, I will not let go of Jesus, even if my heart is breaking. Jesus shall remain my joy, my heart's comfort and sap. Jesus shall fend off all sorrow. He is the strength of my life, the delight and sun of my eyes, the treasure and wonder of my soul. Therefore, I will not let Jesus go out of my heart and sight. You see, Bach's music was a personal proclamation of Jesus remaining the composer's joy, despite the incredible loss and grief he experienced. It was his declaration that he believed in the God of April. Famous atheist Friedrich Nietzsche wrote in 1870 to his friend Aaron Rode, This week I heard the same Matthew Passion three times, and each time I had the same feeling of immeasurable admiration. One who has completely forgotten Christianity truly hears it here as gospel. Of course, this doesn't, he, he later on went on to, to, to criticize Bach and denied this sentiment. But I find it interesting that the music of Bach, regardless of what you believe, brought you closer to understanding and, and wanting to believe in Christianity. In fact, the modern um, Hungarian composer who is still alive today, he's 97 years old, George uh, Kurtog said of Bach, Consciously, I am certainly an atheist, but I do not say it out loud, because if I look at Bach, I cannot be an atheist. Then I have to accept the way he believed. His music never stops praying. And how can I get closer if I look at him from the outside? I do not believe in the Gospels in a literal fashion, but a Bach fugue has the crucifixion in it. As the nails are being driven in, in music, I'm always looking for the hammering of the nails. That is a dual vision. My brain rejects it all, but my brain isn't worth much. I don't know what you're going through right now. But I know that the God of April still speaks to us. Wherever we are in our faith journey, the God of April still has a future for us. I'm going to be playing a video of George Kurtag playing a piano uh, uh, arrangement of Bach's, um, one of Bach's cantata, which is um, called God's Time is the Very Best Time. And it's actually a song that George Kurtag played with his wife of 70 years, uh, Marta Kurtag, who uh, was also an incredible pianist. She passed away in 2019, but they played together for 70 years. And this song is not as well known as Bach's other songs, but I really like this version because of its simplicity and its beauty, as well as the words, which aren't song because this is just a piano arrangement, but I have put the words on the screen for you. And as you listen 
to this song. It's, it's only about two minutes long, another reason why I chose it, rather than a three-hour St. Matthew's Passion. But as we listen to this song, I really want to invite you to take a moment to reflect on the Aprils of your life, right? We've all had those moments in our lives where we experience disappointment and doubt. And perhaps you're in one of those April moments now. And I want to invite you and encourage you and pray that as you listen to this music and as you pray to God, that you will choose to believe that the God of April still lives and that the God of April still keeps his promises and that he has a hope and a future for us. May you choose faith in the God of April. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for getting us through the many Aprils in our lives. Those moments when the deliverance has not yet come. The moments when the answers to prayer and the clarity has not yet come. Help us, if we're in that fog today, to choose faith. To believe that even the most disappointing and the most bitter moments of life is not the end of the story. And that, Father God, you have an ending and that you have a future and a hope for us all. I pray that you be with those who are going through really difficult valleys at the moment. You know who they are. And I just pray that you would lift them up, 
that you provide healing, that you provide hope, that you provide life. And that, Father God, your presence and your faithfulness to us would give us strength and courage to continue to choose faith. I pray for those who are suffering alone, that you would help them to realize that they can reach out for help and that you would help us as a community to be there for them. We pray in your son's name. Amen.